Welcome to the Michelle Meow Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Welcome to the show every Thursday afternoon here at the Commonwealth Club. I'm here taping for the Progressive Voices Network with my co-host, John Zipper. Hey, Michelle. Welcome back. It's always great to have you here. Yes. No, it's always great to have you. It's because of you that we get this wonderful view. And then when it's a nice day in San Francisco, for all of those who are listening, you should be very jealous. Yes. You should come here and realize that half of the the wall of the back of this room is overlooking the bay. Um, the, the, our guest today, I, I'm so excited, so excited to have her back on. She's truly a friend of the show, but you know, she is an icon, a legend in the LGBTQ movement, the movement itself. She's been on the show at, I think the, the very beginning of the Michelle Miao show at the Commonwealth Club. Yeah. And around that time, she had just announced that she was departing from the National Center for Lesbian Rights after serving for over 20 years as their executive director. Uh, and so it's been it's been two years, and I've always pondered in the back of my mind, I wonder what she's up to, because I know she's probably going to surface somewhere, maybe in, you know, 20, late 2019 as a candidate for president of the United States. She is the only person who has not declared as a Democratic candidate. <laughs> <laughs> it's still time, Kate. <laughs> Well, I'm excited now that, you know, I can stop pondering because there is some news. And the reason why she's here today is to talk about uh, something that she's working on, co- working on called Pack the Courts. Let's welcome Kate Kendall. Kate, welcome to the program. I'm so happy to be back here. Yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. And it is a beautiful view. And man, this is a Chamber of Commerce Day in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you, the last time you were here, just uh, announced, you know, that you were leaving the NCLR, which many, many people were like, oh, what now? And then we forgot get that, hey, the organization has been around and doing this work for 40 years, you've led it well, and it's still doing its thing, taking it on its cases. And also, uh, the last time you were here, you know, everything was just so fresh and chaotic with the political stuff happening. And, and it's still chaotic. And it's still, it's gotten worse. Um, we don't have to beat around the bush. And we're all trying to do what we can do to make it better. Uh, but before we start talking about Pack the Courts, you know the drill. Last time you were here, it's tradition that we always talk about a coming out story. While we've heard yours, you know, I actually have never asked you about uh, uh, about falling in love with your life partner and how that all got started. I think I think that's where we'll go. You could share that story. Oh, wow. That I did not expect. Uh, so I met uh, my wife, Sandy. We are coming up on 26 years uh, together. We met at an ACLU conference in Atlanta. I had just started at the ACLU of Utah as the first staff attorney for the ACLU of Utah. So I'd been in my job for maybe three months. Uh, Prior to that, I'd been at a big firm in Utah. And beginning work for the ACLU, which had always been something of a dream of mine, I just, I had to pinch myself every single day. I couldn't believe that this was the work I got to do. So I get to go to this national conference in Atlanta. I'd never been to Atlanta either. And hang out with all of these icons and and heroes to me who had done so much work across a whole range of things, as the ACLU does. So I was already walking on air and pretty much just electrified by that this was my life. And there was an LGBT caucus meeting and... 
I'm introducing myself, and Sandy walks in the room, and I see her, and I think, ooh, she's really pretty. And uh, I didn't think she paid any attention to me, but it turns out she sort of saw me too. And we ended up talking, and the rest is history, and now it's 26 years later. I wonder what that conversation was like. Were you talking about... You know, well, issues, it was interesting. Stuff, we were cases. talking about nerdy ACLU stuff. <laughs> uh, she was she's in was in development, so she did fundraising for the ACLU, and because I had no idea she had any interest in me uh, at all. I was just asking, like, you know, where was she from? Where'd she grow up? How long had she been with the ACLU? You know, you know, just those, you know, those get get kind of getting to know you questions. And it wasn't until really the last night uh, that we were there that she acknowledged that. She was attracted to me, and I was like, "Whoa, wait, you too?" You know, and so th- that was because l- l- I was prepared to just be like, "Okay, well, I just had my little infatuation in my head, but nothing's going to come of it." And then something came of it, uh, and so now two, yeah, so now almost twenty-six years later, two kids, one twenty-two, our son Julian twenty-two, our daughter Ariana uh, seventeen. So you you lived in Utah at the time. Where did. did she live? She lived here in San Francisco. So she, she for twenty. Distance? We did a long distance for a year and a half, uh, and I knew, I knew that she really really loved me when she told me that she would be willing to move to Utah and live in Utah for a period of time. And as a black lesbian, I thought, okay, well you really do like me then <laughs> because if you're willing to live in Utah, uh, so but I wasn't going to test our relationship in that way. Uh, I said no, no, no. Let me be the one to make the sacrifice <laughs> and move to San Francisco. And, uh, you know, I, I, I love Utah. I have lots of family there. I'm going to be back there next week to see my grandkids. But, um, boy, did I make the right choice. Yeah, uh, and San Francisco is lucky to have you. So speaking of kids, you kind of have a new kid, um, except it's in the form of an organization, Pack the Courts. And, and you know, after reading and, and uh, just the, the summary of, or the mission statement of what it does, I have to tell you, I'm part of the progressive uh, groups or progressive voters who feel like, you know, we're just so focused on so many different issues that uh, focusing on the court system isn't priority. And then when you have something like uh, the Brett Kavanaugh appointment happen from a a president and you see that whole thing happen in modern time, you you start to wake up and you're asking yourself, like, how does how did this happen? But in doing a, a lot of reading, it's been happening. Let's start with talking about the the organization, how it got started, how you got involved. Absolutely. So Pack the Courts is the name of the organization. And we actually just had a conversation this morning where, um, and I've had conversations with some of the folks who are here, about maybe thinking about changing the name. Because uh, while while technically we do want to expand the number of justices on the Supreme Court, that's commonly known as court packing, what we really seek is, is much broader than that. Uh, we would have never sought to do this uh, at the end of the Obama administration or in the middle of the Obama administration or when Obama controlled the White House, obviously was the president, and we had both houses of Congress in Democratic control. We wouldn't have even thought of doing it then because... We still believed then that everybody played by the rules. When Democrats are in power, they get their appointments and nominees. When Republicans are in power, they get their appointments and nominees. And that is how our republic has survived, this sort of push and pull in contested elections. Elections have consequences. And while it has been dismaying to me to have the progressive 
left not focus as much on the courts as the right does. A lot of people voted for Trump even though they found him odious for one reason and one reason only, because they knew he was going to appoint justices they wanted to the U.S. Supreme Court. So we, we believed in that system and those norms and that way of doing things, and that was all destroyed by the Mitch McConnell-controlled Senate when they refused to even give a hearing to Merrick Garland after the death of Antonin Scalia. And Merrick Garland would never have been my choice for the U.S. Supreme Court anyway. He would be far too moderate. And we wouldn't get that sort of democratic, progressive, you know, someone who really cares about justice uh, in a full-throated way. But he was Obama's nominee. He was entitled to a hearing, and he should be on the court. But Mitch McConnell dug his heels in and said, nope, we're going to wait until after the election. We all know what happened with the election. And uh, Neil Gorsuch, much more conservative than Antonin Scalia, was confirmed. So the long and short of it is we are in a whole new world that has been coming for about a generation, certainly for the last 10 or 15 years, where Democrats have won far more popular uh, elections than Republicans have, and yet the Republicans have a stranglehold on the U.S. Supreme Court because of cheating because of violation of norms and because of dirty tricks. Given that landscape, we have to respond with some, a bold initiative. We can't continue to play by the norms if the other side refuses to play by the norms. So we, what we seek is a bill when we win in November, please, everybody knock on wood, when we win in November and we have the White House and we have Congress again, to have a bill go through uh, and end up on the president's desk, signed by the president to add two to four justices to the Supreme Court to restore the kind of balance and that sense of fair play that the current court lacks. And that, in a nutshell, is what we seek. We know we have long odds here, but this is a moment where our very democracy is in peril, and we need to do something about it. Now, I know, I didn't know this until I read up on it, but I'm sure most people don't know that this U.S. Constitution doesn't, of course, say how many justices should be there, and that especially in the first, well, only in the first hundred years of the, the, the country, it did change, and it changed by Congress passing a law, and sometimes it was to punish a president and prevent them from, was it Andrew Jackson who was uh, prevented from uh, getting his Merrick Garlands on the, on the court? Um, what I had known, of course, was the famous FDR attempt, and could you talk a bit about that and what is different, or did that was that some sort of an any inspiration in the current effort? Well, this is why I think it's important for us to think about talking about what we're doing as as restoring balance or restoring justice, because because what FDR sought to do was truly packing the courts. He wanted justices who would do his bidding on New Deal legislation. That is true court packing, where your only purpose is we want ideological shills who will do my bidding. And so the way uh, uh, Roosevelt did it, and obviously brilliant, one of the greatest presidents of all time, no doubt about it, but the way he handled this was not very well done. <laughs> he did a, a bill uh, in the dark of night. He didn't tell anybody what he was planning. He dropped this legislation to add six justices to the court, uh, took everybody by surprise, believed he had a mandate because he'd won overwhelmingly for a second term. And uh, the attempt had huge resistance in Congress, as you might imagine. And, but what, and so it failed. But 
the, it w ended up not being necessary because just the threat of expanding the court chastened two of the most conservative justices and they voted in favor of the National Labor Relations Act and the Social Security Act, two pillars of the New Deal that we now in this country all take for granted and see as some of the most equity-producing legislation ever in the history of the country. So the New Deal was good for the country, and there were justices who, rather than see their power diluted, swung to support those pillars of Roosevelt's New Deal. What we're attempting to do is, is actually have the court reflect the popular will. People want to see something done about climate change. People want to see voting rights restored. People want to see an end to gerrymandering. But this court is, uh, the, at least the court majority, are five Republican shills who care about the billionaire class and corporate interests, who want to eviscerate voting rights and want to create a stranglehold for the GOP to have on power that is illegitimate because it won't be reflected in the popular will. They know they're losing elections. They know they can't win a nationwide popular vote. But if they can consolidate power and assure that gerrymandering continues and voter suppression continues, they can continue to have the stranglehold on power. That is undemocratic. So democracy itself is being in the line of sight by the Republican GOP uh, Senate, and, and we need to respond to say, no, 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 that's not democracy. We really wanted to restore democracy, and the only way to do that is to dilute the effect of these five justices. You mentioned that this is a, 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 a tall order. It's going to be challenging. But there is a strategy. Talk to us about that strategy. It, it actually is very exciting. And, and to engage you know, our, our Democratic presidential um, candidates in this way, I think, is very intelligent. Well, what's been uh, pretty amazing for me since I joined in February when I first joined, the conversations I had with our executive director, Aaron Belkin, were focused on how are we going to get attention for what it is we're trying to do? How do we get this into the national conversation? Let's see if we can, maybe we can get a presidential candidate uh, on the Democratic side to talk about this issue. So we were thinking very small ball. Uh, we did get someone to ask a question of Pete Buttigieg way back in Philadelphia, who's now obviously is white hot. Uh, and on fire, asked him a question about uh, taking back the court and court packing. And he said, uh, people kind of laughed, and he said, actually, we shouldn't laugh. We should take seriously doing something about court reform. And that lit everything on fire. And then Eric Holder, um, again, not a, not a question planted by us, but a, we have Yale Law students who are working with us, was speaking at Yale Law School, and he explicitly said, given the dirty tricks and misbehavior of the Mitch McConnell Senate at the earliest opportunity when the Democrats control Congress and the White House, uh, there should be a bill that expands the number of justices on the Supreme Court. Okay, once that happened, it was like, whoa, hang on, because we had a rush of media, and we've got some slides that, that will show for folks to see um, the 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 rush of media that we got. And this is just, this is just a small sampling, but it was, it was uh, yeah, here's, here's just a small sampling of um, CNN, the New York Times, uh, Time Magazine. It, it was one of these, 
situations that, that I could only compare to when Newsom started issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples in 2004. NCLR was right in the middle of that. And you had uh, probably 60 uh, uh, satellite trucks ringing City Hall, beaming the coverage of what was going on. That's, this is what this felt like. We had probably 10 to 12 stories every day coming out about core packing, moving mainstream, this being a talking point. And we've clearly hit a vein where people want to see a response. So we've had tons of media coverage, probably three or four million dollars in earned media coverage. Uh, we've had uh, seven now candidates running for the Democratic nomination have expressed support for some sort of judicial reform. And and that's all we need. We need a conversation for what are we going to do about a court that is lost to us and how do we take back the court? How do we restore justice? So it has taken off in a way I couldn't have imagined. We have, we have some opposition, too. We've seen some opposition. I don't know if we've got uh, slides for that. But um, my, my, most, my favorite day was when um, Donald Trump Jr. Uh, tweeted against... Uh, uh, court packing. And I was like, okay, this is awesome that Donald Trump Jr. And actually Trump himself, maybe we don't have uh, the opposition slides, but it doesn't matter. Just, oh yeah, here we go. So uh, yeah, Donald Trump Jr., Mitch McConnell, uh, Marco Rubio threatened to drop a bill freezing the court at nine justices. Uh, and then Trump himself spoke to it and said, uh, that's I can guarantee that's not going to happen for six years. I don't know what in the world he was talking about. Why <laughs> six years and why that, how that makes sense, makes any sense. But, but when you've got, anytime you've got opposition from Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump Jr. and Marco Rubio and Donald Trump, you're doing something really, really well. So we take it as a point of pride that we have ignited beyond our wildest dreams um, a conversation and an appreciation for just how, just how fragile our democracy is and how undermined it has been, uh, it, has be it has been by uh, Mitch McConnell and Republican leadership who allowed this to happen on their watch. And this conversation that's been started is, does go beyond the Supreme Court. It is talking about other uh, levels of the courts. Talk a bit about that. What, what sort of changes are people looking at? Well, we feel like all the federal courts, it, is, it was a frustration of mine as a lawyer, really beginning with Clinton, where I started to pay attention to it, that Democratic presidents did not move swiftly to get nominees confirmed to the federal court in the same way Republican presidents did. Even when we controlled the Senate, it was, it was just not a priority. And it, it has, I found it so maddening um, that when you look at the number of of judges to, appointed to the lower federal bench, especially in the early months of a, of a, of a president's term, the Republicans always outpace uh, the Democratic presidents. And, and Trump uh, couldn't, I mean, he, Trump doesn't even know about how, what he's doing, but Mitch McConnell is the architect of this, making sure that right now they are doing everything possible. They are literally packing the court, and they are packing it with Federalist Society, which is a, a, a very, very extreme right-wing organization, Federalist Society-approved judges, some of whom are manifestly unqualified for the bench. 
You think Kavanaugh is unqualified to be a U.S. Supreme Court justice, which most people think, even people who are on the conservative side of the ledger. We now have justices, judges who've been confirmed to the federal bench um, who have very, very thin resumes, no record of how they're going to perform. And it just demeans the quality of judges on the federal bench. So what we would want to do when we have power and when we control the Senate and have the ability to do this is um, fill whatever vacancies are left. And hopefully, I mean, Mitch McConnell is, is moving very quickly to fill. There's probably 170 or so vacancies. He's already, they've already filled 40 or 50, and his intention is to try to fill them all. But we have to take, when I say we, and I, and I don't mean this to be so partisan, but it's partisan because of where the GOP sits right now, ideologically. Um, so when Democrats control these branches of government again, we have to take what's happened to the courts more seriously, and we have to understand that the courts are going to survive, and those judges are going to be in those lifetime appointments long after uh, the occupant of the White House leaves, and we have to create some urgency around that. I, I don't mean to hog no, the questions, good. but just, just to follow up. In the first two years of Donald Trump's presidency, of course, he had both houses of Congress turn about as fair play, as they say. I mean, is that situation in the future, that could happen again, or is the thinking somehow addressing some way to retain a balance going forward? I guess Buttigieg has talked about, um, you know, five Republican-appointed uh, uh, Supreme Court justices, five Democrat-appointed justices justices, excuse me, and then those justices would select five others together unanimously, which not likely to happen. But I mean, what's your thought about what would come next? I mean, they're not going to take it sitting down. That is probably the second uh, most often raised question or objection to what we're proposing mm -hmm. is that, well, you're just ensuring mutually assured destruction and the downward spiral and there'll be retaliation as soon as Republicans control um, all three branches of government again. And, and my response is, if, if we move w this quickly when we have a chance and we restore voting rights and we end gerrymandering, the Brennan Center, named after uh, Justice William Brennan, who was one of uh, a, a, a more more on the liberal side of the ledger, but, but a very, very well-respected jurist, more sort of moderate to liberal. The Brennan Center, named after him, estimates that if, if we just restore voting protections that were stripped by this court, that would add 50 million voters to the polls. The Republicans already aren't winning popular elections nationally. If we restore 50 million voters to the polls, many of those folks of color who understand uh, which of the two parties most cares about issues impacting these communities and economic disparities and all of that, um, it'll be even farther out of reach. So that's one response. And the second response, and this is just sort of my nature a little bit, uh, it's a little bit like when, um, when Newsom began issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples. When, they, when he first approached me about that, his chief of staff called to tell me that it was a Friday, called to tell me that on Monday, the mayor was going to begin issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples. My first response was, oh, no, 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 no. Thank you very much, but no, that's a really bad idea. There will be a huge backlash. You know, he really shouldn't do that. I really appreciate his sentiments, but it shouldn't happen. And Steve Kava, who, who was this um, Boston, Boston guy, 
and kind of an enforcer uh, as Newsom's chief of staff, listened to me politely, and he said, well, Kate, I hear you, I hear you, I hear you, but let me just tell you, on Monday, the mayor's going to begin issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples. So by Sunday, you know, I talked to my team, we talked to our colleagues at GLAAD because they just won marriage at their state Supreme Court, and by Sunday, I had done a total 180, and I remember, I remember actually pulling up, I was in front of my house talking to my legal director, Shannon, and, and he was like, you know what, we should, let's just do this. Let's just do this. Let's go get, let's get behind him and provide whatever he needs. And I remember hanging up the phone thinking, all right, game on. Let's see what happens. And so I have a little bit of that feeling here, which is if we don't do something, people's lives are going to be destroyed mm -hmm. by this court. Roe will be gone. And poor women will not be able to access reproductive health services generally, let alone access abortions. Ending mass incarceration, forget it. Ending the disparity, the tremendous wealth disparity between the rich and the poor and seeing that gap get wider, that's what's going to happen. LGBTQ people, trans folks particularly, are going to be victimized by the brutality that this court is going to allow to happen. So... We don't have a choice, really. And I don't think the tit for tat is going to happen. But secondarily, we don't have an option to just sit back and say, well, let's do nothing and hope it's going to be all right. I think there's momentum, though, if, if we could stay on even, um, you know, restoring voting rights. You have candidates like Stacey Abrams, who ran for governor, and uh, her entire campaign focused on the, you know, unjust systems that had taken place and had robbed uh, the, the right equal way of getting votes in. And you really start to see citizens, you know, people, we go back to where, where our priorities as progressive voters um, really care about this and really want to see some changes. So I think even just looking at the slides and getting the media attention that you have so far, um, with, coupled with candidates or voices like Stacey Abrams, uh, there we can go somewhere with that, even if their response in return is, you know, these progressive leaders, the Democrats, there's some kind of witch hunt. They've got some, you know, they're, they're trying to bring us down. This is unfair because that's kind of been their narrative, the people on the far right. How do you, it, it, let's just say they don't do the tit for tat, but they go there. That, you know, this, this is a, a direct attack on our, our, uh, our freedom, on our, 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 our government. They're really good at doing that. And I, I have full faith that Kate Kendall is going to stand up on a hill somewhere and be like, I got this. I'd love to ask <laughs> just, just, just about that and if you're prepared to respond to their dirty ways. You know, I, I made the decision when I first started my career at NCLR as legal director, uh, I, would, I, I would debate all comers. I'd be on any show. I'd be on any radio show. And I remember, I mean, one of the most, probably the most infamous one was debating Jerry Falwell on Crossfire. Um, you know, Reverend Jerry Falwell, we all know the damage that he did and the toxicity that he spewed against LGBTQ people. And it was very early. I think I was maybe interim executive director. I'd been at NCLR for just a couple of years. I hadn't done a lot. I've done, I'd done a ton of media at the ACLU, but I hadn't done like national news shows. And, um, and I remember 
and, and so that was sort of the pinnacle of, of that. And I would, but I accepted it all the time because I felt like it was important for my voice and the voice representing my community. And I was in the position I was to, to put that out there. In the later years, especially as we started seeing a huge culture shift when it comes to the lives of LGBTQ people, um, I got tired of debating my humanity and the humanity of LGBTQ people. It started to really take, a, I felt like it just took a toll on me. There was a, I felt like I lost 10 minutes of my life every time I did it, that it was just, and because I actually felt like things were shifting and, and it didn't matter so much. And so I would just say, you know, if somebody was on the other side, like on the other side for balance, it's like, no, there is no other side to that LGBTQ people should exist and be treated with respect under the law. So I sort of feel that way a little bit about the, this effort here. I'm happy to engage anyone about what it is we're trying to do, how dangerous the courts become, how thoroughly in the back pocket of, uh, of special interests, and that, that when, I mean, when I say special interests, I mean corporate interests, this court is. I'm happy to have those conversations. But if, if what somebody wants to say is, I like these five justices just who they are, I, I, my, my agenda is their agenda, I want, to pr I want them to promote the agenda I want, that's not, a, I'm not going to change their mind. I'm not going to change their mind. And so it's, it's less about engaging the hardcore supporters of, of Trump or these five justices who think Kavanaugh and Gorsuch are the best thing since sliced bread. And it's more about what I feel like our biggest challenge is, is educating just your average voter about how important the courts are to their daily lives. And the decisions that are going to be coming down around corporate influence and the influence of dark money uh, in politics, around efforts to try to protect the climate. That is going to be huge, and we have to pay attention to it, and that is our biggest challenge, is to motivate people to care enough about the courts to, uh, to engage. That's actually been kind of a running theme, in a way, uh, through uh, a number of programs Michelle and I have done on political issues, um, and that is... The challenge of, like you say, not you're not going to convince a certain number of people. Democrats tend not to vote in the same numbers as Republicans during midterm elections. They get ginned up for a an inspiring presidential candidate, and then you know they're like, okay, cool, Obama's got it. And then two years later, something else happens. Um, but also, it, it does seem that, and what I'm getting around to is kind of how how do you communicate this to Democrats who? do need to learn about the courts, how they work, what they affect, and not just when it suddenly starts affecting them directly, but about all of that <laughs> civics class stuff of, yes, if you vote your party in on the local level, and then that person goes to the state level, and then that person goes to the national level, you know, you've got a bench, you've got, you've got, you know, because when you weren't doing that, we lost hundreds, we Democrats, I should say, Commonwealth Club is nonpartisan. Um, this is purely my view, but Democrats lost hundreds of, of, of legislative seats across the country and have started to creep back to get some of them. So that seems to be a big challenge of communicating almost a worldview shift in Democrats or progressives' minds. Yeah, one, one word, Kavanaugh. Mm. Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing ignited a whole new uh, generation uh, of uh, progressive, democratic, centrist, independents, women to care about the court. 
and to understand um, that, that issues that impacted particularly women uh, were now in the hands of an individual wholly unqualified to sit on any bench, I would argue, let alone the U.S. Supreme Court. So we want to take that newfound attention and literacy for the court and translate it into, you're not going to be able to impeach Kavanaugh. You're not going to be able to impeach Kavanaugh. I don't believe it. Mm-hmm. I wish it were true, but it's not going to happen. But if you can nullify his vote, I'll take that. And so we want to, uh, there is a new attention and literacy. And I think we're about to see a spate of decisions come down from this court uh, over the course of now and the end of June that will make crystal clear just how dangerous this court is and how out of touch it is with issues of justice, fairness, equality, the, 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 the struggles of average folks, and that will be another opportunity for us to get, get better saturation. Right now, we got a lot of attention yeah. from the, the top-line thinkers, from journalists, from the political class, but, but we need folks in the middle of the country uh, who are Democratic-leaning or, or haven't made up their minds yet or are, are dismayed by what they've seen Trump doing to be able to have as part of the things they're thinking about, oh, yes, the Supreme Court. I remember hearing about the court and what the court's doing and how important the court is. So we just have to find those moments and be very, very opportunistic. Speaking of you know, presidential candidates and it being part of your strategy in packing the courts, I mean, can we talk about the, the candidates and maybe who you might be most jazzed about at this moment, this time? So I have... Um, I th- if you say William Weld, I will give you a dollar. <laughs> you know, the fact that Trump has opposition makes me really, really, really happy. And, and I do think... Um, part of the somewhat silent majority, and they've been silenced because of uh, the overwhelming uh, loudness of Trump supporters, are mainstream Republicans who, you know, from David Brooks on, who have just felt uh, with, with increasing dismay that the party they love and the party that they grew up with and, and the values of the party uh, whether I share some or none of them or not, uh, is, has been totally perverted by the current leadership. Much of the current leadership came up when the party still had some semblance of sanity and have now, are now aiding and abetting uh, you know, an individual with the, the, uh, the discernment and acuity you know, of a toddler, and no offense to toddlers. I'm sorry for any toddlers who may be offended by that comparison. But, but that, it, the Republican Party has just unmoored itself from any sense of, of, of decency or governing, and now party is all that matters and holding on to power is all that matters. Country does not matter. And so you know, in that kind of, a, in that kind of, a, of a, a moment, it's been really exciting to see the Democrats just explode with this record number of women who are running for the presidential nomination. I love that my daughter, my 17-year-old daughter, 
I was excited when she got to see Hillary mm-hmm. throw her hat in the ring and run. And now you've got seven women, six for sure, maybe seven. Um, and so I love that we have so many strong, qualified women candidates. And I'm dismayed by the fact that they're being, their stories are being overshadowed by the media chasing the you know Bernie, Beto, and uh, Buttigieg. Uh, so that's my first con- just observation. I think Buttigieg is transformative, and he is definitely shifting the culture as an openly gay man, super articulate, very bright, um, a charming, charming guy. I, I saw him at uh, Manny's here in San Francisco speak, and, uh, and he should be getting the attention that he's getting, and I think that's really good uh, for queer people generally. Um, but I feel like uh, that he, Beto, several of the other white men who are running, um, Bernie, who had his day, doesn't doesn't I wouldn't put Bernie exactly in this category, but but they have thin resumes for being a president. And I realize we've had the biggest the person with the thinnest resume to actually be in the White House, who is now <laughs> a president. So I get that the rules have changed, but but I do want to have the president have a heft to what they've done and how they've served and what their record is. I think that should matter. So I want it to matter. So I want to have my candidate, I'm not going to declare who exactly I might be supporting, but I am super excited about women with resumes like Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren, who we would be so lucky to have at the top of that ticket. And I'm hoping that once Buttigieg has his moment and people have, are done with their fawning a little bit, that, that we have a serious conversation of who has the kind of credentials that we can be proud of. I was just going to say it's now time we, we open it up for questions from our audience to ask Kate. And it is being taped for Progressive Voices, so we've got a roaming mic. And, and ask your questions into the mic, please. Hi there. Hello. Thank you for your personal information and your political information. I'm sad to hear that you don't think impeaching Kavanaugh would work. Uh, One bit of information that may be helpful when you talk about toddlers. Uh, In psychotherapy, there is a term called the age of Ruth. It's about age three. Before that, children are ruthless. Oh, wow. So, oh, my gosh, that's right. fantastic. Okay, okay. So that's one way to think about it. Yep, I love that. Okay. The question I have, being very aware of the uh, problems in the Democratic Party, is do you have any Pelosi corporate Democrats who are interested in what you're doing? The strategy... Oh, excuse me. The strategy we um, we've been implementing so far is has really been to generate media attention, and the way we've done that is to get these presidential candidates on the record. But you, it's interesting you should mention Speaker Pelosi, who I just saw in Palm Springs last week, and uh, spoke to her chief of staff, and she and I got a couple of moments together, but we didn't get to chan- a chance to talk that much about the strategy of expanding and taking back the court. But what I did say to her chief of staff is, this question's coming. She's going to get a question about does she support 
expanding the number of seats on the Supreme Court and restoring a sense of justice and balance. She's going to get that question. She did get that question at the London School of Economics uh, a few days ago, apparently. And uh, as our intrepid reporter who was reporting it back to me stated, she sort of dodged it <laughs> and didn't really answer it directly, which is exactly what I would expect. But we want to put on notice the current leadership in Congress and anybody who's going to run for re-election that you will be asked this question. You have to have a position. Because this is the thing. I don't care if it's the Green New Deal. I don't care if it's uh, increasing teacher pay. Whatever policy anyone has for bringing about a greater sense of reformation to this country and, and, and restoring a sense of economic opportunity and justice, that, that measure, that bill, will be dead on arrival at this Supreme Court. So every candidate and every member of Congress has to have some sort of strategy for what they're going to do about judicial reform because all of their great ideas will end up at this Supreme Court and will then die and will never see the light of day. So it, it's irresponsible to have a great platform if you don't have a strategy for operationalizing it. So that we've, we are, that is the next phase of the strategy is making sure that members of Congress who will eventually vote on this bill understand that they need to be talking about it now, what their strategy is for judicial reform. Question for Kate from the audience. So I have a question. Oh, over here. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were saying you did. <clears throat> I have a question. Talking about operation. Oh, there's one back there, too. You do? <laughs> Thank you. Hi, Kate. Thank you. Hey, how you doing? Thank you for being here. Um, I'd like to hear more about, you talked about that the left has not been able to rally around their candidates around Supreme Court decisions like the right. Um, and what do you think this time we'll be able to do different? Because we, last election, it, it wasn't, it, you know, that fear of the way the court would go was not enough to unify the Bernie Sanders voters with the Hillary Clinton voters. I think that was a big problem. So are you guys, I know it's, not really your main focus, but are you prepared? Are you going to be working on that this time and be part of the voice that's going to make sure that we do, and once we do have this big fight and we come out with one candidate, are we going to be able to use that as something to motivate people to coalesce around one, one candidate? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, here's the thing that I feel like, um, I mean, I'm, I'm a part of the progressive left, so I'll accuse myself of it too. I think the left doesn't do a very good job of responding to threat. Threat does not motivate. Well, the threat has become real. We were threatened with, if Trump wins, he's going to get Supreme Court appointments. And people were like, but he's not going to win. And so that's just ended the conversation right there. Um, when Trump got elected, uh, I knew that it was going to be, um, uh, I had no idea it was going to be quite, the, can I say shit show on the radio? Absolutely. Uh, I did not, I did not, it, well, I didn't know it was going to be quite the dumpster fire it is and so much carnage and harm to so many vulnerable populations. But I knew it was going to be bad. And, and I think like everyone, uh, what we've now seen is our very worst fears have been realized. So we're no longer talking theoretical. 
oh, if this guy gets elected, then they're going to be have terrible Supreme Court appointments. We're here. So I feel like that's the frame we have now. And what are we going to do to try to undo that damage? It is too late. It is too late. We should have woken up sooner, but we didn't. And here we are. So we have to deal with the reality as it is. And we can't engage in the magical thinking of, well, let's just have a, if we just had a Democratic president and we have Congress again, uh, everything will be okay. The court won't matter that much. No, we can't do that. We can't do that again. That's the thing I most fear is that people will think, I, this is a little too bold or provocative idea for me, this idea of expanding the court. I just, I just want to believe that it'll all work out. And that we have to not do that. So the, our biggest challenge is to create that sense of urgency. And to, we want to be able to use examples. So we're doing studies. There's a study that we're going to be releasing next week. that, um, And we want to have uh, uh, Alexandria Cortez uh, Ortiz Cortez, introduce a bill called the Green New Deal Protection Act because we're going to issue a report that will show that her Green New Deal will be strangled by this court. It will never go anywhere. So we want to be able to match policy proposals that people like with the threat that this court poses, the lethal threat that this court poses to all of those policies in order to move people forward and to have those as discussion points for why we need this strategy and why the court matters so much. So, you know, stay tuned. We've, it, it, you know, we're going we're to try to break through uh, the noise that we he- see every day, but we've got a pretty good track record of getting some attention, and we just need to keep doubling down on that. Any other questions? I have a question. Then. Um, let's say you have a dog chasing the, uh, the mail <laughs> truck, and you catch it. Yep. Let's say Democratic president, big majority in the Senate and in the House of Representatives after the next election or the one after that. Um, what should they do, assuming they then you know, pass this bill and you've got whatever, 12 to 15 people on the court? What, what should they do? What, what, what would you recommend as a legislative thing, as the type of judges they should be looking for? Should they be teed up with judges before the election? I mean... Give us a, the successful. Yeah, well, I think what we want is we want, we want judges from the federal bench who have a, a demonstrated record of clarity about, uh, about the suffering of people in this country and that government has a role in preventing that and in making people's lives safer and more humane um, and being able to live with dignity. And the first few measures I would want to uh, pass right away, they'll be cha- they'll, of course they'll be challenged, and they'll end up at an expanded Supreme Court, would be restoring voting rights, um, bringing challenges to gerrymandered states, uh, getting rid of Trump's military ban on transgender service. So we would go back and we would and get, have a sane immigration policy where children are not torn out of their mother's arms and then left to... Uh, in some place that we don't even know, uh, to be traumatized on a daily basis. Um, we, would, we would do everything we possibly could as quickly as possible to undo as much of the damage that we could from this administration. And we would want judges, I don't care if they're appointed, this, this used to be the thing. It didn't matter if the judges were appointed by Republican or Democratic presidents. Generally, 
most justices were pretty centrist. Mm -hmm. And so we would look for justices who understood the Constitution as a living, breathing document, that times change. We want the Constitution to have that kind of malleability. But we do have bedrock constitutional principles that we care about. Corporations are not people. And we want to get dark money out of politics. And we want to restore the pe people's faith in their democracy, which is badly shaken by misdeeds that have been aided and abetted by this court. So we don't, I don't have anybody particular in mind, but it's less about an ideological purity to progressive values and an ideological reverence for the Constitution and principles of justice and dignity. You know, marriage equality, uh, the case of it, and, and you being uh, so much a part of the movement and seeing how the cases had shaped the public, society, it created this cultural shift. I mean, so it's, it's just like a, a tectonic shift, if you will, and, and it all leading up within decades of work. I feel like if we, if we really are talking about, you know, changing the court system or court reform, and we really wanted people to understand how important this is, um, you know, cases like marriage equality would have to be front and center for and, and how it impacts people's lives uh, like for people to really understand and grasp how dangerous this, the, the, this current court really is. Do you have, um, I know you touched through some of those issues, but are there, are there any cases that we could really be focusing on and, and, you know, talking about? Yeah, that's a great question. It, uh, part of the data, we have a big data and research piece of work that we do because Aaron Belkin is a, is a social scientist and political scientist by training and education, and, and he ran the Palm Center. He was the architect behind how we got rid of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and he did it through data. Mm -hmm. He did it through data to show that gay and lesbian service members did not undermine unit cohesion, you know, they were in no way a threat. And he, we, he, we, he tried to do the same thing. And, 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 of course, the data is rife around transgender service as well. But obviously, we're up against a court that's been stacked against us and an administration that just seeks to do harm to transgender people. So what we want to do, um, a little bit like I said about research on these particular issues, the next piece of work that we want to push out um, uh, is is how much damage this court, the court, the conservatives on the court, have done to uh, to people of color in this country, and particularly black folks. And we want to elevate certain stories. Uh, stories about, I mean, I think there was a recent story um, where the court refused to block... Um, uh, block the death penalty from be, for a, an individual from being executed, where there's pretty substantial evidence about and doubt about this individual's guilt, and of course, African American man, and uh, and some jury tampering and some just some shenanigans that went on. I mean, clearly this was a candidate for that sentence being commuted to life in prison uh, without parole, and even that I feel like is a little bit. Uh, iffy, uh, but no, he was executed. And so we want to, we do want to elevate these stories. We want to humanize. We want to bring bring a closer connection between harm done to actual individuals and what the court does. And we want to we want to bridge that gap, and we want to make it more real. So that you've hit on exactly a key tactic mm -hmm. that we're going to be deploying, and we're going to do it around climate. Uh, we're going to do it around women and having the right to, uh, to abortion. Um, we're going to do it around 
you know, students and access to safe schools. We're going to do it around gun violence. And so we, we do want to have some individual stories to tie to the issues so that it better bridges that, that gap, that enthusiasm gap, so that people understand, no, this court is really dangerous to actual human beings, not to theoretical issues. You mentioned... Uh, Can Yeah, the freedom of the press point was made by one of the members in the audience. I mean, there is no doubt that that Trump uses the uh, autocrat's playbook. And the first thing you do uh, as a dictator is you undermine faith in the free press and you undermine people's ability to discern fact from fiction because facts don't matter and facts are malleable. So definitely paying attention to what's been happening to the media and the attacks on the media uh, and restoring um, uh, media independence and free press would, is a key, would be a key piece of what we want to make sure that this court does. There's another gap out there, which is we talked about messaging to uh, voters. Conservatives for decades have been very effective <coughs> at... Um, you mentioned the Federalist Society, of grooming judges and lawyers, bringing judges to conferences and such like this, and pretty lavish money behind it because there are, there's a lot of money involved. Um, liberals, I guess, do some of that, but frankly, nowhere near the same uh, range. Is there any, any suggestion? Do you see any... Uh, beginnings of of liberals beginning to realize, oh no no, this needs to take place a long connection and and and, and a relationship with judges and potential judges over many years. That's such an important observation. I was, it's interesting. I was having this conversation with a colleague just a couple of weeks ago, and and I was comparing it to the Federalist Society, which um, the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation both very very conservative. Um, institutions that want to institutionalize their ideology and have been very, very uh, painstakingly focused on it, laser-focused. So Heritage Foundation has a huge office in D.C. with a bunch of apartments in it, and they bring hundreds of interns, come, they put them up, they live there, they steep them in a far-right ideology uh, that, that prioritizes uh, privatization and corporate interests, and and federal society much the same. This grooming happens at a very early age, and I don't know why it is that we think, as progressives, I think we have this, we have so much faith <laughs> that the things will just work out, mm-hmm. that people will come to the right place, and what I think we fail to appreciate, and the Federalist Society is a perfect example, is that if you create a vacuum, it will be filled. And we have created a vacuum in legal education by, by not grooming more progressive lawyers uh, at younger ages, by not having a muscular presence in law school. You have the American Constitution Society that sort of grew up as a counterpoint to the Federalist Society, but they're dwarfed by the size and the money behind the Federalist Society. So we, I feel like that is sort of stage two mm-hmm. of, of trying to institutionalize justice is we have, to, we have to take a page out of Federalist Society playbook and understand that, um, that democracy won't take care of itself. We definitely understand that now. If we didn't understand it before, it needs protecting. And the way you protect that is by having 
a whole range of foot soldiers who are willing uh, and understand that country first, democracy first, the Constitution first, before party, before even other identities, and and we need to begin paying more attention to that. We're winding down on time. We'll entertain uh, another question or two from the audience. Uh, thank you, Kate, for, for bringing forth all of these instances that are immediately important to the survival of our independent judiciary. Thank you, um, I mean... If, if uh, there is another uh, term of the current presidency, we can kiss that independence goodbye for at least a generation. Yeah. Um, what, what we're discussing right now has to do with longer-range plans. And longer-range <laughs> has to include restoring uh, uh, institutional instruction on governance and on civics and uh, how are we going to go about doing that we're, mm. we're we have let go a program that that used to be common to all of our public schools mm-hmm. and now it's very hard to find anybody who has been through courses that leave them with an understanding of how the constitution works why it's special what mm. makes it um a living, breathing document. I, I remember we were, when we were talking recently as a team about, uh, you know, do we want to produce some videos to get out there what it is we're trying to do, um, uh, this restoring, restoring balance to the court. How, how can we conceptualize that so people get what, we're, what it is we're about? And the idea I had, I said, did anybody here, and it was a couple of them were a little bit younger, uh, far younger than me, I said, so even, I don't know if you youngsters remember this, but remember uh, Schoolhouse Rock? It was this, these, little, these little vignettes of cartoons, and I remember vividly being like eight or nine years old and seeing the one, How a Bill Becomes a Law. And I remember thinking, wow, that is really cool. And it's something as simple as we've lost. We have, and we've allowed, we allowed, a lot of this was done under Republican regimes, but then when we had opportunities, we didn't restore critical thinking in education, civics in education. This teaching to the test um, has, has done our kids such a disservice and created a, a generation of young people who, yeah, might be able to, to take the test, but give them a complex problem or talk to them about something like this, something about what's been lost with the court. And they have no, it's completely, it's Greek to them. And they don't speak Greek because they, they, languages aren't taught in school either. So, you know, they've de- 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 we are, we've really lost a generation. And I feel like on the list of things that I would want um, uh, uh, Democrats particularly to do when we have power again is, is, Take a hold of education and take care enough about as uh, education should be right on line with health care. Health care and education should both be key priorities for the, for the Democratic Party and for state legislatures, which have, many of them have been lost to Republican leadership because of gerrymandering. So this is all kind of part and parcel. If we could restore uh, democracy generally, 
then the popular will actually can inform policies rather than seats being stolen or people getting elected to office illegitimately. And, and I feel like that is a really important conversation that we have to have because if your citizenry is not well-educated, you can pretty much do anything. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we're living through a big piece of that now with a much of the electorate not, not appreciating how dangerous the occupant of the White House is because they appreciate his forthrightness rather than understanding how dangerous he is to their quality of life. Uh, In talking about education, let me make a plug for a moment about the clean money campaign. When you look on television now with ads about propositions and petitions and on Facebook, they will have to show the top three funders in large enough print <coughs> and for long enough for you to see it rather than the blah, blah, blah committee. So we are educating the voters of California in a way that may help, and maybe another state will pick it up. That's a perfect uh, uh, observation, and I just want to say we are lucky to live in California, especially with you know, Newsom now, the governor, he has already signaled uh, a, a sort of boldness and courage that we always knew he possessed, but it's great to have him on a much bigger stage. And California, California has huge influence in this country. And if California can lead the way on something like this, on youth corrections reform, on ending mass incarceration, on, on being more humane around immigration issues, we, we could, and, and doing, we need to do much better about education. Our education in this state is, is woefully inadequate and woefully misses the mark. But I, I'm hopeful for where California is headed, and I'm hoping it can be a harbinger for, on many other issues beyond even just getting, having, getting the money cleaned up and having it be obvious who's giving to what. I think we have we've one, run, more, one more question. question. Yeah? Sure. Okay. Okay. Okay, yeah, well, we've run out of time. The bell rang, um, and uh, I usually get the last word, you know, but, but so I'll wrap it up very quickly, and you can answer it however you want. And that is, you know, when you left NCLR, I mean, we got marriage equality. You know, it's unconstitutional to discriminate against um, LGBTQ couples, and huge, right, and to walk away from that. So we know that you are a part of success in our movement. So to see you take this very seriously and to be excited about it, um, I can't help but think, like, we're on to something. This this can actually really be a game changer for us, and it's going to impact the future, and it's going to go down in our history books. You're already in our history books, but then, you know, I don't many more volumes of history books after of the work that you've already done. So are you ready for this? I, when I left NCLR, <clears throat> I didn't know what I was going to do next, but I knew whatever I did, I wanted it to be something of consequence because that's just, that's just the gear I run in. I want to feel like I'm making an impact. Um, if I have half the success with this effort that I had at NCLR, uh, our country's going to be in a much better place, and I'm excited about that prospect. Kate Kendall, everyone. Pack the courts. Thank you so much for being here for the Michelle Meow Show. Again, we're here every Thursday afternoon. You can check the schedule at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS for future talks. We'll see you next time.
Thanks for joining us for the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. We're here every Thursday live at the Commonwealth Club, and you can listen to past shows at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS.